um, honesty demands that we face the barriers to faith in Christ. And one of the key barriers, one of the, the barriers that we need to acknowledge, and that is uh, an issue perhaps for you, perhaps for me, perhaps for any of us at a particular time, can be the matter of suffering. Let me put, put that at two levels. One is the, the philosophical level, as the, I'll call it the, the question of suffering. It's a barrier to, to the head, to the mind, to the thoughts. It's more of a, at an intellectual level. It goes something like this. You, you have the God, the God of the Bible, who's described as being all-powerful and all-good. And then over here, you have our experience on a daily basis with pain and evil and suffering. And so the, the question is, the struggle is, how can you reconcile those two things? How can God be, as the Bible describes Him, as being all good and all powerful, and yet at the same time, we have to deal with the reality of pain and evil and suffering? And so the, the resolution that oftentimes is made for this dilemma and this tension is, well, then I suppose God can be either all good but not powerful or all powerful and not good. That's actually a false choice, and perhaps we can talk about that over the fireside chat at the end of the, uh, at the close of the service. But that's at the philosophical level, the question, the question of suffering. Sometimes it's not at the, the, the philosophical level. Sometimes it's not a barrier to the head. Sometimes it's a barrier to the heart. It's not the question of suffering. It's the pain of suffering. It just hurts. It just hurts, and it hurts too much. Our text this morning where we're going in Matthew 27, the death of Jesus, actually addresses this barrier. Well, both these barriers, as I've described, both the question of suffering and the pain of suffering. I'm not saying it answers at all. The whole corpus of the Bible has to be brought to bear on that. But it certainly takes us a long way down the road in wrestling with some really significant things. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 45. Matthew 27, starting in verse 45, and reading on through verse 61. Hear now the Word of God. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee 
ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord Jesus, to be sure to speak of the topic of suffering and the questions and the pain that every one of us associate with that, and understandably so, to to say that we could possibly have some answers, that's a stunning thing. And we need answers. We really, really do. We need some things, uh, new ways, right ways, true ways with which to see And so we come as your people this morning asking, pleading with you to give us eyes with which to see, to understand what we see here in your word. Even again, as we are spread out in our homes, far flung in this community and perhaps even broader than that, perhaps watching live, perhaps watching it recorded, um, whatever it may be, we ask that you would meet us where we are Help us to see and hear. We pray for your mercy in these things. Amen. The prophet Isaiah, about 600 years before these events are recorded in Matthew's gospel, the prophet Isaiah wrote of one that it was described as the suffering servant, a series of what biblical scholars for years have called the servant songs. They're towards the end of the book of Isaiah. Again, some 600 years before these words. Isaiah speaks of this one who is described as the suffering servant, and in particular, perhaps the most well-known of those uh, servant songs is there in Isaiah 52 and 53. I want to read to you just one verse, one verse from Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, verse 3, and just half of that verse. He, whoever this is that Isaiah is referring to, he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows, this suffering servant. As you read what precedes that, uh, that little quote that I just read, and what go, if you keep reading, it becomes very clear that though this be 600 years before the actual events took place, Isaiah is clearly referring to Jesus. Jesus is the man of sorrows. Now imagine for a moment you were there. You were there watching, observing, listening to everything that Matthew has just recorded for us here in chapter 27. What do you hear? What do you hear? Uh, You hear a cry, a, a shout of anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's there in in verse 46. Jesus is here speaking the words of David about a thousand years before. David, in Psalm 22, screams out these words, a cry of dereliction. 
In essence, he's, he's, a paraphrase of this is, my God, my God, oh Lord, why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me? Why have you deserted me? Why? This cry of anguish, the cry of dereliction, that's what you hear if you're there that day. That's what you hear. Now, where do you hear it? What's the context in which you hear it? Well, we see that there in, in verse 45. I don't, don't, don't miss this. Now, from the sixth hour, that's noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That's three o'clock in the afternoon. This darkness for three hours in the middle of the day. Now, please understand, this was not because of a storm. This was not because of an eclipse. This is a supernatural darkness pointing towards a cosmic lament, divine judgment that is being poured out upon someone. Someone. Okay. That's the cry we hear in the darkness. Whose cry is it? Well, you look up and you see that it is, it is Jesus. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, Nailed to a cross. It's his cry in the darkness. Why? What's going on here? He is standing in our place as our substitute, bearing our sin and our guilt, and therein enduring the holy wrath of God. And hence, he is, truly is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He is the one crying with this voice in the darkness. Jesus is the man of sorrows. Jesus truly, truly is the man of sorrows. Now, connecting way back to where we started in the, the matter of sorrow, our sorrow. Jesus is the man of sorrows. As we embrace that, that changes our own. Jesus is the man of sorrows. As we come to grapple with that, as we come to understand the significance of that and what that means, it transforms our own experience of sorrow. Not necessarily taking it away or removing it, but transforming it and changing it. How so? We see it in three ways in, in the passage here. And the first is this. This cry that we hear of Jesus, this cry in the darkness, gives us the answer we need to suffering. It gives us the answer. The only one that holds, the only one that really resonates. That's the first thing, the answer to suffering. The second thing is it shows us the purpose of suffering. That's the second thing. And thirdly, it shows us what we could call the fellowship of suffering. So we have the answer and the purpose and the fellowship. Let's look at these in, in turn. So first we have the answer to our suffering. Again, there in verse 46, what is this cry, this cry of dereliction that we hear? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is the significance of that? Think with me. We worship a God who suffers. We worship a God who suffers. Think what this was not, that what this cry clearly is, is not. It was not a mistaken cry. It's not that Jesus thought he was forsaken and he wasn't. No, no. 
He said he was forsaken, for he was. For he was. This is not a mistaken cry, nor is he simply feigning sorrow. He is not emoting something. He is not play-acting. He is not simply just quoting Scripture. No, he is he's experiencing what he is saying to, to the uttermost, to, 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 the, to the uttermost. That's, so this was not a mistaken cry. He's not feigning sorrow, not in any way. What this was was the abandonment by his father, the son being abandoned by the father. This was hell. Those three hours, in some mysterious way, Jesus is experiencing hell on that cross. This is why, going a few hours before, this is the explanation, the only explanation for the profound, deep anguish and agony that he is experiencing there in Gethsemane because he is anticipating what is coming a few hours later, what we're reading of now, those three hours as he is abandoned, forsaken by his father. If I can put it this way, this is the alienation of God by God. This is the alienation of God by God, a holy mystery, truly a holy mystery that we need to reckon with. This is Jesus' fully entering our world, our experience. In no way is he an observer just standing, watching, watching, watching. No. No, he enters in. So this is, this is the one solid answer that we have to the question of suffering. We worship a God who suffers. We worship a God who suffers. We need to recognize as, as believers, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, the problem of pain is a real problem. It is a real obstacle. It is a real barrier for faith. Now, the reality is there is an answer to that. There is an answer to the question. The atheist does not have an answer to this question. The atheist actually has a, a, even a, 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 an irresolvable problem. If you cut God out of the picture and yet you're still struggling with the reality of pain and evil and suffering in the world, you actually have no basis to protest. You have no ability to shake your hand. Well, where are you shaking your hand at? You can't protest that there is evil if you've taken God out of the picture because now you have no good. The atheist has no ability, no ability to reckon really with in a substantive way with the, the problem of evil. Whereas the Christian, what the Christian recognizes is that we have a God who takes evil and sin and suffering and pain so seriously. He takes it so seriously. He takes it upon himself. He takes it upon himself. This is the answer to the question, the answer to Suffering. We have a, the, the man of sorrows. And as we embrace that, it changes. It changes our own. That's the first point. The second, moving right into the next point, is not only do we have the, the answer to suffering, but the purpose. We can see a purpose in, in suffering. And we see that again with Jesus' cry there from the cross. Again, what was this clearly, this, what was clearly not the case? What do we know was simply not true in what we're seeing unfolding here? 
We know that this was not, Jesus' death was not a senseless, meaningless, empty, vain death. Not at all. Not at all. We know that this was not a senseless death. Yet at the same time, it was not clear and understood what it was. You see, it wasn't senseless, but what it was was not clear and easily understood. The disciples, underst- well, readily understandably, they, they, they are despairing. This one that, it, that they had invested and put all their hopes and dreams is buried in the tomb, which is just what they've had to do with their hopes and dreams, bury them in the tomb with him. Can you imagine how horrible that Saturday must have been for them? How long that day must have been for them? Because though this was not senseless, it was not clear and understood just what it was. So it's some of the things we see in terms of you just rule out what it wasn't. But what, what was it in terms of purposefulness? Well, we can see certainly that there was meaning. Though the, the, the onlookers, the witnesses... The the disciples could not discern what was going on here. Nonetheless, it was still yet the climax, the fulfillment of God's eternal, unshakable plan. Even though Jesus' followers couldn't see what was going on, it was actually, though they thought at the time it was the worst thing imaginable, it was going to be shown it was the best thing imaginable. And it was good. Not only was there purpose, but it was good. Beyond their wildest imaginings, beyond their wildest dreams, the Lord was bringing life from death, beauty from ugliness, God's shalom from and through Satan's schemes. So you see, this was anything but a purposeless, meaningless death, time of suffering. This cry, this cry of dereliction, Jesus, there on the cross, points us towards the reality of purpose and suffering. And there always is. There always is for the believer, and it is good. There always is for the believer, and it is always good. Think with me just our immediate context right now. Social isolation, the tanking economy, our ruptured, disrupted plans and dreams, or perhaps even the worst, most terrible losses we may ever experience in our lives right now in this time of COVID-19 and this global pandemic. God has good purposes in mind for it all. And in fact, hard as this may be to grapple with, but Jesus' cry of dereliction shows us and points the way towards this. Somehow, in the mystery of God's ways, what He is doing in and through our circumstances now will prove to be better than it otherwise would have been if this had never happened. I can't tell you how. I would not dare to explore that. But what we see from the Scriptures, Jesus' own experience, 
is that even if we can't see it, even if we can't believe it, His purposes are real and they are always good and better than we could ever have envisioned. That's what we see here. The man of, with the man of sorrows, the man of sorrows, as we grapple with that reality, it can change our own. It takes us to the third and final point. Not only do we see the answer to suffering and the purpose of suffering, but the fellowship of suffering, the fellowship of suffering. Again, what, what are, let's look at, just clarify some things. What's simply not true? What do we know is not the case as we look at this passage? Clearly, God is not distant. God is not distant. He is not the God envisioned by the deists some, some centuries ago, the cosmic uh, watchmaker who puts it all together, shapes it just right, the universe, and puts it on a shelf and steps back and lets it run its course. God is not distant. God is not distant. We know that. We can see that from what we're seeing here in this passage. Also, we can see it's certainly not true that He doesn't care. It can't be that He doesn't care. It can't be that He is oblivious. It can't be that He is indifferent to the sufferings of His people. It can't be. Not when you look and see what's going on there with Jesus and why He's doing what He's doing and who He's doing it for. Now, clearly, God is not distant. Clearly, it's not that He doesn't care. Rather, what we see here, what we have here, is the rich, beautiful assurance that he knows, that he, he knows. He knows not only what we are suffering, think with me, he knows what it feels like. He knows not only what we're suffering, he knows what it feels like. Jesus experiences this to the uttermost, this suffering in his being forsaken by his Father. So we have the assurance that he knows, and we have the assurance that, he, that we are not alone, never alone, never abandoned. Because he was, we never will be. Because he was, we never will be. The, the, I know this is getting close to Easter, but think with me the Christmas time message, the, Eman, the promise, the promise of the Emmanuel presence, God is with us. Or, or the, the temple imagery, going back to the tabernacle and temple imagery, the presence of God with His people always, always. Well, that, the fulfillment of that is that we are now the temple, and His Spirit dwells within us. So He is always with us. We are never alone. So you see the beauty of this, where we can run with and, and begin to think through how to apply the fellowship of suffering, knowing that Jesus, Jesus knows, and we are never alone. Okay, so let's, let's press into this just for a moment as thinking about where we are, you and I today. You're scared, and you're wondering what's coming tomorrow because you don't know. You don't, we don't know. Well, Jesus, He's been there. He knows that. He lived day. This is the... The Son of Man, who did not have a place to lay his head, who was daily, moment by moment, in the fulfillment of the Israelites and the manna and the desert and all of that, every day just daily looking to his Father for provision, not knowing exactly how it was come. He's been there. He knows. He knows. Your body, your body is failing you because of injury or illness. He's been there. He knows. 
you have found yourself to be, perhaps just recently or right now, uh, or thinking back over the course of your life and the wounds have never been healed, misunderstood, maligned, and mocked. He's been there. He knows. You've been let down, hurt, betrayed by people that you thought were going to be there for you through thick and thin. He's been there. He knows. You're surrounded in this time of social isolation and needing to stay home at all costs, surrounded by people who are driving you crazy, who just don't seem to get it when it comes to the right perspective on, on our circumstances right now. Surrounded by people who drive you crazy. He's been there. He knows. He's been there. He knows. He gets it. And more than anyone else, He can get you through it. The man of sorrows, the man of sorrows, as we embrace that, it can change, it can transform our own experience of sorrow. Let me come back to where we started, the obstacles, the obstacles to faith, the barriers to faith, the problem of suffering, at the philosophical level. Some of us, that's where we are. We're wrestling with the question of suffering kind of in a heady, intellectual way. And then others of us are wrestling with it more at the heart level, not the question of suffering, but the pain of suffering. I trust you can see how this passage does address these things. It doesn't solve it, and not for a moment do I, am I deluding myself and thinking that anything that I have said over the last few minutes answers all the questions and takes away the pain. Not for a minute. But if I may mix the metaphors for a moment, to the degree that we can see things clearly, it can help to lessen the load. It can help to lessen the load. Christianity brings a unique vision to the reality of pain and evil and suffering, unlike any other worldview that is out there. It is, brings a realistic hope. I want to close in the reading of a poem I came across this past week by a gentleman the name of Edward Shalito. He was a minister in England during World War I. It's entitled, Jesus of the Scars. Jesus of the Scars. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us. They are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. If, when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine, we know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone.
but thou alone. Jesus of the scars is the man of sorrows. And as we understand that, as we embrace that, it can change, it can transform our own experience and our own sorrows. Let's pray together. Man of sorrows, what a name. No one else is worthy of such a title, for no one else has borne the load you carried, bearing our sin, carrying our guilt, not yours, but ours. You suffered as no one ever has or could. You are the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You know it all too well. May we know that. May we know that you know it all too well. Oh, would you cause our hearts to hear the answer to suffering, the purpose in suffering, the fellowship of suffering. Oh, would you help us to hear, to lay hold of these things, and to live out 